Grace to you and peace from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm told that if you travel to Guatemala or certain parts of Mexico, they have something there that they call a worry doll. These are very small dolls, maybe two inches high, made of wire and cloth, and they're given to children as friends with whom they can share their worries and fears. Uh, it's said that they are these uh, worry dolls are rooted in Mayan folklore, which tells of a certain sun god giving a princess a gift to help her face her fears. And while most tourists are the ones who are interested in these dolls today, and apparently they're pretty popular, you can buy them and bring them home just for the fun of it, um, there is something interestingly similar with what some child psychologists here use in terms of an approach for a child dealing with anxiety or fear. They might offer them a doll or some other stuffed animal to be an imaginary friend to whom they can also tell their dark secrets. And so it starts early, this anxiety that we have for tomorrow. And our fears of the future can paralyze us in the present, leaving us burdened or even frozen in fear. According to an article in the New York Times, this is a few years old, 2015, but I think it's probably still true, maybe even it's more. Uh, the title of the article was The Anxious Americans, and they reported that on average or in a given year, Americans spend over $2 billion on anti-anxiety medication. Now, I want to be clear, sometimes it's absolutely necessary. If you are struggling with emotional health issues, with anxiety, with depression, these can be life-giving. But what's notable is that we, as U.S. Americans, are among the most anxious and most medicated nations on the planet. We worry about not having enough money. We worry about our health or the health of loved ones. We worry about our appearance, our relationships, our jobs, just about everything else. We even worry about whether we should be worried or not. And you could probably relate. I know that I can to that. Already 500 years ago, there was a French author, Michel de Montaigne, who wrote this, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which has never happened. In other words, it was all in his head. His worst fears never actually materialized, but nonetheless, the anxiety, the worry, the dread, of his frightened imagination focused his best energies on the worst of what might happen. Now, while Americans may be especially troubled with anxiety, it's not anything new to the human experience. Go back to Jesus' day, and clearly from our gospel reading, there were many then who would be anxious about their futures too. And while their anxieties seem to be a little more basic than ours, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear, they all still follow the same line. Their fears, 
drove them to imagine the worst and then spend their best energies fretting about it. Jesus, in our gospel then, from Matthew chapter 6, speaks to this very issue. And what he names is fear as the primary enemy of faith. One might expect it to be doubt, faith, believing in God, doubt, doubting God, but time and time again we see Jesus addressing fear as the root cause of weak faith or the lack of faith at all. So think, for example, when the disciples are on the boat and the sea around them, the Sea of Galilee, as we call it, is raging, he says to them, Matthew chapter 8, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He doesn't doubt their faith. He confronts their fear. And so when Jesus confronts our anxieties, it's not surprising that he makes it an issue of faith. He has us look to God's creation, how God takes good care of the birds of the air and the lilies and the grass of the field. And so in Jesus' words, Matthew chapter 6, there is a beautiful lesser to greater argument and logic that he follows. It goes like this, if God the creator cares for the birds and the lilies and the grass that he created, how much more will our God? Our Heavenly Father care for us, His children. But there's also a beautiful irony here that these lesser creatures of God should teach us nervous, anxious human beings. The crown and pinnacle, no doubt, of God's creation. These little birds and flowers and grass teach us about God's provision and simple faith in him. So maybe as you hear the little sparrows fluttering around your house, I know they're trying to build nests in the parts of our addition that haven't been enclosed yet. My wife reminds me every day, <laughs> and our cat loves to go and listen to them, pondering ways that she might pounce. But when you hear the little flutter of the birds or see the sprouting flowers emerging from their frosty winter rest, what you can see is the ongoing care of a creator God who loves and cares for us far more than these simple creatures. And so when you hear their song or witness their waving in the breeze, you can see a chorus of witnesses to the trustworthy care of our God throughout every corner of his creation. C.S. Lewis, you probably know C.S. Lewis, great Christian author, in his study of the scriptures, identified four great analogies in the Bible for God's love towards us. They go in ascending order, one, two, three, four, right? One starting at the bottom. And the first is this, the love of an artist toward her creation. The way that a potter loves her cup fresh off the wheel, or if you're a painter, you just admire the painting once you have it completed, or maybe you're a baker or I'm a home builder, and so I like to stand outside and look at my shingles and just delight that they're actually on the roof. <laughs> so the love of an artist for something they have created. Um, this is similar to God's 
relationship with the birds and the lilies as his creation. Second is the love of a master for a creature or a beast of burden or of pleasure. The way a shepherd, for example, loves his sheep, the way that you may love your cat or dog or fish or lizard, whatever it is that brings you companionship and joy. The third is the love of a parent for a child, the way a dad waits eagerly to welcome home a runaway son, or you when you get an email or a text message or a visit from your children or grandchildren or other companions through which you have journeyed in life. This is where we fit in the Sermon on the Mount. We are a heavenly Father's dear and beloved children, and He will love us to the end. If you're wondering, by the way, the fourth of these loves is that of a spouse for another and how faithfully they support and encourage each other. Uh, This is what C.S. Lewis describes in his book, The Problem of Pain, and that would be analogous to uh, Christ and his bride, the church. Not where he's going in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but a theme familiar in the rest of Scripture. So Jesus then, in building this argument from the lesser to the greater, in pointing to these simple, humble creatures whom he loves, but we whom he loves even more, he tells us that the antidote to our worry and anxiety is to trust in God's proven love for us. He's not saying that bad things won't happen to us, nor is he saying that we can just sit back and wait to be fed like Elijah was in the desert. There's no permission in the gospel to give up working for what we eat or to stop praying for what we need. This is Jesus saying that trust in God's prevailing and persistent love displaces the stranglehold of anxiety upon our hearts and our minds. And so it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul can say in Philippians chapter 4, don't be anxious about anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so acts of faith and trust, like prayer and committed reading of your scriptures and giving thanks in all circumstances, regardless of how you feel or how the future looks, these acts of faith Faith also displaced the stranglehold of anxiety on our hearts and our minds. And there's even more. Jesus goes on to say in verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. To seek first the kingdom is to value our relationship with our Heavenly Father over everything else. It's to love the Lord most deeply. To seek His righteousness, then, is to delight in and follow the Lord's will wholeheartedly to the best of our human ability. And so here, midway now through our season of Lent, it is somewhat less overwhelming to hear Jesus call to trust. Because in these days, leading up to Palm Sunday and Holy Week, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and of course, Easter, with all of its joy, we find ourselves closer to the cross, 
And there is where we find our truth. For as the old Latin phrase goes, sub cruce veritas, under the cross, you can find truth. And that's where we find Jesus, close to his dying, where we can hear his whispers and shouts. And at the end of his suffering, we can hear him cry out, Father. And in this way, in his dying, as he falls asleep in his father's arms, entrusting to him his spirit, and also entrusting to him his tomorrow, and the next day, and the day that would follow, and all of God's, his father's, providential care. Here at the cross, we see a father listening, caring, and still providing for his beloved son and for you, for you, his beloved children. So yes, this father is one whom we can trust. And so we can put down our worry dolls or whatever else we may choose to try to cope and simply rest in his love. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ to resurrection life. Amen.